So let's just get a couple definitions out. So just an urban legend is just a, a belief or a story or some assumption or truism that gets passed around as fact. And, you know, <coughs> uh, I'm weird. I will admit that uh, I'm weird in the sense that I, I'm overly annoyed by urban legends. So I, I purposely make a fuss out of things that don't really matter. So, for example, here recently, give you just a, a real-world example. Um, for New Year's, a conversation sprung up in my house. Oh, no, we didn't have black-eyed peas. I'm sure a lot of you did. And I'm like, and nor am I having black-eyed peas. Not because I have a problem with black-eyed peas, but I have a problem with how stupid that is. It's just stupid. And the problem is, is that every time you say it, then your kids hear it, then they're going to say it, and it's, this thing just keeps going, and it's just dumb. See? That's just an example of... Now, that's harmless. So, you know, if you want to do that, fine. It doesn't. It's just a personal preference. Urban legends really aren't going to hurt anybody. Spiritual urban lessons, legends, on the other hand, are dangerous errors that will eventually bring heartache and disillusionment to all who trust in them. They are something that we should uh, consciously, intentionally avoid. And so we're going to talk about those over the next couple of months. Um, but, you know, a lot of... I just want to kind of get your head around you know, some of the ways that this affects us. You know, spiritual urban legends uh, are propelled by Bible-believing people who have heard supposedly trustworthy people teach them things, and they're, uh, like all good lies or myths or whatever you might want to call it, you know, they're based somewhat in truth, but these are are it's not about what is taught but it's it's how it's taught so for example you think about the way that most churches teach children the bible which a lot of this danger comes from uh, people who have grown up in the church because see where there's, if you think about it, where the, there's the, le normally, in a normal situation, where's the least oversight in what's being taught. The, in 99% in a, in, in of churches in America, the younger the child, the less the oversight. Now that's not here, but that's most churches. Nobody's really worried about what you're teaching the preschoolers or the first graders or the second graders, you know, and they think we're weird because we obsess over it all the time. But what happens is it that's where it begins. And so, for example, if you grow up in church and you learn about Abraham and you learn that Abraham was faithful, well, that's true. And God made him the father of a nation, and that's true. But if you learn that you should be faithful like Abraham, that's a problem. Or Joseph was, you know, he was the good boy, unlike his bad brothers who sold him into slavery. So because Joseph was good, God made him the prime minister of Egypt, so you should be good like Joseph. 
Or David had a pure heart, unlike his brothers. And because he had a pure heart, God made him king of Israel. And so you should have a pure heart like David. Or Esther was an obedient girl. God made her queen over Persia and saved God's people through her. So you should be obedient like Esther. You tell all the little girls, you should be obedient like Esther. So what happens is you grow up and you hear all this stuff and you think, well, if I fail to be good, well, Jesus will forgive me. But G the way Jesus works in my life is predicated on me. And you see, the thing is, that's not the gospel. The gospel is a, the whole storyline of the Bible is, is a holy, just, beautiful God pursuing wicked people that are running away from him as fast as they can. That's what the gospel is. And all the people that, that are captured in the Bible by God's love are unworthy. They weren't captured because they were, had a pure heart or they were good or they were faithful. They were unworthy. So what the gospel, I mean, you see, we want, we want to understand the necessity of grace and we want to understand the gospel. So we want to understand that, that God, the wonder of the gospel is not the love of the beautiful, but it's the beautiful that loves the beastly. That's what the gospel is. So, you know, the beast doesn't, isn't loved because he's changed. The beast is changed because he's loved. That's the gospel. And so we, we want, we, but, you know, the way we learn things start, sort of sets a precedent and starts a progression. And the next thing you know, you know, when we just say things like, uh, I was listening to some uh, Christian commentary uh, on the uh, podcast the other day and, and uh, you know, and respected uh, influential Bible teachers. And, you know, the comment was made. One of them said, well, you know, we're all God's children. That's not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible says. You know, I mean, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, those who are apart from me are children of Satan, the father of lies. That's what Jesus said. But nobody checks up when you say, well, we're all God's children. But it's not true. And what happens when that gets drilled deep into your heart it's eventually going to cause problems. So tonight we're going to look at the first urban legend, spiritual urban legend, which is faith can fix anything. And, you know, this is this is a uh, conversation that in order to have in one night, it's it's 100 percent incomplete because I could do an entire series just on this one urban legend. But we'll. We'll tackle it. Um, in the best way that God gives us strength to do that. So look at Hebrews 11. Now, I couldn't put the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 in there. We wouldn't have had room. But it, I just want to remind you that Hebrews 11, that's the uh, God's hall of faith. You know, that's the great faithful people in Scripture. And the 
the chapter opens with faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then uh, Hebrews 11.2 says, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And then it's, you know, Cain and Abel and Noah and Moses and Abraham and on and on and on. You know, all these Old Testament saints and all this. And so then we get to verse 32, and this is sufficient for our conversation tonight. And what more shall I say? So after 31 verses of, of spiritual superstars, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Now notice verse 35 begins with, and women received back their dead by resurrection. No doubt referring to the great faith of Elisha who prayed and raised the widow's son. But in the same verse, there's a break between 35A and 35B. The second half of that verse shifts complete gears. So one minute we're, we're conquerors, shutting the mouths of lions and conquering countries and doing all these great things. And then it's, and some were tortured, refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. You're like, well, what just happened? They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hmm. That is the clearest explanation or at least jolt in the Bible to make you stop and go, now, do I understand faith? Do I have a right idea when I think about What's the Bible teaching? So this passage makes obvious that having true faith in God is no guarantee that you will experience comfort or security or health or wealth in this life. Zero guarantee. Now, we normally, especially we in this room, intellectually would concur with that statement because, you know, you've been uh, taught the Bible with slow, careful, exegetical teaching week after week after week. And so you should, you know, not fall prey to a statement like that. But at the same time, what happens, it's very insidious the way it affects us. But when, when we're dismayed about life, when things aren't going the way that we think they should go, we start immediately reeling back into this ditch, this quicksand of, you know, 
why is this happening? Why is God punishing me? Why, the, you know, why don't I have faith? Or I had faith and, and I felt confident that God was going to do this and then God didn't do it. And it's also obvious that suffering in this passage was not because of their, that their faith had faltered. You see, you notice that there's all this suffering, but then at the end, they're commended for their faith. So the problem here, the reason why all these afflictions happened, was not because faith failed, not because they uh, regressed in their faith. They were, they stayed strong and were faithful. I mean, you think about who these who who these uh, verses are talking about. You know, subjected to uh, fire, talking about. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did their faith falter? There's no indication their faith faltered anywhere. And yet, you know, you, you see triumph, but you also see struggle. You know, it wasn't as if they, you know, prospered when they had faith, but then things went bad when, they, when their faith weakened. That's not what happened. See, in fact, it was precisely because they acted by faith that provoked the enemies of God to treat them with disdain. That's a very key thing to understand. See, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's a guarantee. It's not popular. You know, it's hard to, uh, what makes the Bible hard to teach is that to teach it well, you have to teach things that people don't want to hear. And so it's hard. It's very hard. And it, it, it creates very challenging situations a lot of times, um, you know, that I'm just grateful that I don't have to deal with. But the faith that Hebrews 11 is describing loves God more than whatever it is you want to put in that blank. So what I want you to, what I want to do is I just want to paint a picture so we can see a little bit about, you know, just sort of understand on a, a bigger scale about what to be aware of and, and how this works. You know, for example, um, if I were to ask you the question, well, what does God want from us when we face seemingly insurmountable odds? Like when you get into a situation where you are in desperate need of God to help you, or it seems like what you need to do is impossible, or whatever the case may be, what does God want from you in that situation? And I think most people would answer faith. And I would say, okay, good. But then I would ask the question to you, faith in what? And then you would answer, faith in God. And I would say, faith in God to do what? Faith in God to fix the problem. Faith in God to... And then my question is, whose definition of fix are we placing faith in? you got to think it all the way out. 
You can't just say, well, when I face insurmountable odds, we want to have faith in God. Because you've got you've to get down to, well, what is that faith? What do you have faith in God doing? And nine out of ten times, it's, it's our idea. And you can have all the faith in the world in your idea, and it's not going to mean a hill of beans to God. It's not going God doesn't, God doesn't do your will. He does his will. All right, so we want to have the right faith in the right person in the right way. We want to just think it through. And then furthermore, if you think about like, well, what do, if, if I say to you, well, what does the word faith mean? Most people would define faith by saying, well, faith means to put faith in something is to have confidence in something. Okay, that's fine. Then I say, well, what about belief? What does it mean to believe in something? Well, to believe in something usually means to have intellectual assent. In other words, to we believe in it because we understand it, right? So faith would be to have confidence. Belief would be to intellectually understand it. And then trust, what does trust mean? Just in a simple way. Like if you trust something, if you say, I trust this, the only way that makes any sense is if there's some corresponding action that follows it up, right? That's the only way that makes any sense. So you think about, you think about faith, you think about belief, and you think about trust. Those three things. And how to us, those are three different things, which they are. But when you're reading your New Testament and you come across those words, most of the time it's the same Greek word. It's the same Greek word. So just for example, when, when we started, I said Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So you think about, like, for example, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes, right? So now if you predicate your understanding of God on that verse, then you say all you have to do is believe. That's it. You just have to believe. You don't have to have faith. You just believe. You don't have to trust. You just believe. Because John 3.16 says just believe. But then in, for example, in Luke chapter 8, when the woman who had an issue of blood for so many years and she pushed through the crowd and she touched the hem of the garment and she was healed and Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? And, and he told her, daughter, your faith has made you well. That's the exact same word as the word believe in John 3.16. It's the exact same word. So those, those words are synonyms that the Bible uses, sometimes it's used as a verb, sometimes it's used as a noun, but it's the same root word. And the point is, is that the Bible's not making some big distinction, but you can't, you can't base your understanding on one simple thing. You have, to, you have to understand, well, now, what is the Bible teaching? I mean, can you believe in something without having faith in it or can you have faith in something without trusting it well you can say you can that's a fact so 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 this is why how i want you to understand the key to understanding true faith comes through examining its object 
not examining, don't examine the, the, the words that you're using to, it, it's not about the word belief or faith or trust, or, but what's the object? And that, this is where you're going to w- figure this out. This is very simple, okay? So whenever you're thinking about faith, what's the object of the faith, which is the little exercise I did. Well, you have faith. Faith in who? Faith in God. Faith in God to do what? Faith in God to fix the situation. So what's the object? Not God fixing the situation. You got down to the, to the nitty-gritty of what the, what's the point of the faith. Where does it end? What are we trying to get to? That's going to lead you to the, well, you know, where you are. And here's, where, here's what happens. Is that you're going to end up frustrated at some point because it's not God's idea, it's your idea. And the frustration is going to grow out of faulty expectations. See, the problem with the little illustration of faith for God to fix the problem is the fix the problem is your expectation. Who says God wants to fix the problem? God's problem, my guess would be God is actually fixing the problem in what you hate. Yeah. But see, the, so here's the thing. You've got to be very conscious of your expectations. Whenever you're trying to think through this faith deal, it is so predicated on that. Because once there's a human expectation, here's what happens. Then faith is not God's, it's not a God-centered act of the will stemming from God, but rather it's a human-centered spiritual force directed at God. Because essentially, if you say, I have faith in God to fix this problem, then what you're saying is, you're telling God what to do. You're saying, God, here's how you should fix the problem. You see that? Does that make sense? Now listen, I am not in any way insinuating that we ought to not tell God what we want. You should absolutely tell God what you want. He already knows that, but he's pleased with that when we do. And that's helpful for you. We should talk to God about what we want. But we should do that with the understanding of the fact that we don't know what we want. We don't know what's right. We, we have such limited information. And so it's a very humbling thing. It's like a little child, you know, saying to a parent, I don't want to eat broccoli. Well, that makes perfect sense if you're a little child because it tastes like tree bark. But it's good for you and you don't understand that. And so I have to explain to you that you need to eat that because it's good for you. And that it's the same thing. It's not wrong for the child to say it would be wrong for the child to act like the broccoli tastes like a Twinkie. Because it doesn't. So we don't want to be dishonest, but we, we want to, what I'm talking about is being honest. So this false view of faith turns God into a personal cosmic genie who exists to grant your wishes. That's problematic. It's problematic. And that's not at all what the Bible presents God to be a relationship with God to be. So some examples. Here's what faulty faith would say. If God really loved me, he would deliver me from the hands of those who torture me or torment me or whatever the situation is. 
See, if God really loved me, he would fix it. No. That is completely and utterly wrong. Now, true faith says there's a resurrection life that is infinitely better than what I might gain if I escape this torture. Because, the listen, what's, what's not at issue at any moment in your life as a believer is God's love for you. And that's why I said this could be a series, because it's so intertangled up into other things. You know, this creates another problem where we start believing that God's love for us ebbs and flows based on our behavior, which is another unbiblical thing that we talked about last Sunday. So, why would God, who can do anything, not just eradicate suffering from the world? That's a fair question, right? Well, okay. The first simplest answer is, well, first of all, to do so would shut the door on those who have yet to believe the gospel. So it would be, so it's mighty selfish of a saved person to want God to just hurry up and end suffering. Well, because look at the consequences that that moment has on the people who, and here's the point, we all know that God's not going <laughs> to show up, the rapture's not going to happen when we want it to happen. But just look at, look at the posture of the heart. So the Bible teaches us that we say, Lord, you know, come quickly because of you, Lord. Not come quickly because I'm tired of facing trouble and I don't care who goes to hell. No. Second reason would be because salvation most often comes through trial. So... In suffering, God is providing the unbelieving world, whom he's staged, staving off his return for, with a glorious gift and expression of love. You see, if all the suffering went away, the first thing that would happen is you would see nobody getting saved. If I said, raise your hand, if you, if, if, when you got saved, it was through a time of trouble, hardship, whatever. Almost every hand in the room's going up. So what happens if all the trouble goes away? See, all the trouble is going to go away one day, right? And guess what? Nobody's getting saved because guess what? Everybody's going to be saved. See, everybody will be saved. So it's, and then next, the, the faithful suffering of God's people is such a great display of the truth that he himself is better than anything else. The greatest testimony of the worthiness of God and the reality of God is when we suffer well. So if suffering disappears, then what's the difference between us and, and the unbelieving world? In other words, What's going to captivate the attention of the, of the unbelieving world if there's no suffering? It's, you see, we would just behave slightly different. So 
the church would be no different than the Elks Lodge or something like that. It would just be, we just go to a different building, do a different thing, you know, sing, sing different songs or whatever, you see? There wouldn't be any supernatural power that compelled the unbelieving world to stop and take notice. Okay, so then the next question would be, well, then why live by faith if it won't fix all the problems we face? In other words, because faith is difficult. Like I said Sunday, I mean, walking a plank, walking by faith and not by sight. I mean, we all want to walk by sight. So why even do that? Why not just say, well, well if it's not going to fix my problems, and in fact, what Hebrews 11 is teaching is that it's going to, and 2 Timothy is teaching that it's going to actually make problems in my life and create hardship in my life. So anybody who's rationally thinking about this would go, well, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to do something that's going to make my life harder. That's a great question. So why would we do it? Well, the first reason is simply because that's what God wants. You see, the thing is, is that if you believe that God is who he says he is, well, then number one is he says it's impossible to please him without faith. So therefore, irrelevant of what faith brings or what faith does or doesn't do is irrelevant because the God of the universe says to please him, you got to have faith. So I'm having faith. Just that. You notice how when you start to, to, to think this through in the context of truth, how all of the realities don't have anything to do with me. The reason the Bible compels me to have faith has nothing to do with me. I'm compelled to have faith because of God, not because of me. Next, I'm compelled to have faith because faith fixes the biggest problem that we face, which is eternity. See, to say, well, why would we have faith if it's not going to fix our problems? You couldn't say anything dumber than that. Because the greatest problem that could ever be imagined is the problem of being eternally separated from God. And faith solves that problem. So just that in and of itself, is that not sufficient? That it, it requires faith to please God and that it solves the greatest problem that we could ever imagine? I mean, what problem even comes close to the problem of our separation from God? Nothing. Nothing. So, thinking about faith, look, faith, it's not a skill that we master. Nobody masters faith in this life. Nobody. Nobody. That's not what faith is. It's not some discipline that you can become, uh, you know, we don't get like different colored belts, so we're all trying to be third degree black belts in faith. That's not how this works. That's not... That's not what faith is. It's not an impenetrable shield that protects us from life's hardships and trials. Clearly. Just come hang out with me for a minute. It's not a magic potion that removes every mess. No. You put a bunch of Christians together, you're going to have just as much mess as if you put a bunch of lost people together. It's just a different looking mess. Same thing. So it's like a, you know, just a different version of the same mess. 
we try to act like it's not, but it is. So I think the best way to think of faith is this way. It's a map that we follow. Faith is a map. Life is a journey. Faith is a map. And so I want you to think about this map for a second. Because I I want you to have the right understanding of is the Bible filled with examples of people who were good at following the map? No, it's not. But it is filled with examples of something that have to do with the map that's very important for us to get. They're there for a reason. It's, it's certainly teaching us. And when it comes to this map, it's all about the destination. See, the point of a map, you ever, you ever get frustrated with, uh, am I the only one that wants to punch Siri? I've never met her. You know, if she was a real person, I wouldn't say that. I'd say you were created in the image of God and Jesus loves you. And I'd share the gospel with Siri. But since she's not real, I feel like it's okay for me to want to punch her because I do. Because she makes me so stinking mad. And I tell her to do something that she's done a hundred times. And then all of a sudden she just goes, "Um, I'm working. I'm working. And when she says that, you're like, it ain't happening. You know what I mean? It's not. It ain't happening. And especially when you get direction somewhere, so like you've been there before, but you don't remember exactly how to get there. And so you say, Siri, find this. And then she brings up the directions and you go, that's not the way to get there. Right. But, you know, the squiggly lines here and the lines here and the lines here, and it all ends up at the same place. And then sometimes the line that's dark blue is leading you to the same place. But one of the, if you just hit go like my wife does and not pay attention, I'm like, what? Did you look? No. Why? Because the other one said you get there 10 minutes quicker. Why didn't she highlight that one? I mean, Siri just decided for me that I wanted to go on the scenic route. But anyway, so the point is, Siri is a good example because... The only thing that matters about a map, if you have a treasure map, the only thing that matters is, do you find the treasure? That's the only thing that matters, right? Nothing else about it matters. Is Does it lead you to the destination? So this map, once we arrive at our destination, it really doesn't matter what doubts or concerns we had along the way. You see, if I have a treasure map and I'm trying to get to this treasure, And maybe it's going to take me years of, you know, travel to get to this treasure. And along the way, sometimes I get disheartened. Sometimes I get disillusioned. Sometimes I get distracted. Sometimes I I give up for a while. But then I, you know what? I go, you know what? I'm going to stay focused. And I get back on the track. See, sometimes I get off, but then I get back on. I don't, the point is, you don't have to follow the map perfectly to get to the treasure You just have to stay committed to the map in the long run. You could be a really stinky map follower. But if as long as you get back on, see, the the Bible's not saying, hey, if you want the treasure, you can't deviate from the path. That's not the gospel. 
That's not the gospel. What is the gospel? Is the gospel, as long as you find it in yourself to get back on the path, as long as you just somehow get back on the whatever, 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 you're going to find the treasure at the end. That's not the gospel either. The gospel is God's the treasure and everyone who is his will find it. That's the map of faith. See, a saved person, a saved person, the, the, only, the only thing you're, so your fellowship, your ability to follow the map of faith is what determines your experience on the journey. See, if you're saved, your ability to follow the map has nothing to do with you finding the treasure because that's already a foregone conclusion. Boy, I see some light bulbs coming on. But your ability to, your, your discipline in following the map determines your experience. So like, if you're saying, I've been really struggling and it's, you know, uh, see, you, your, your fellowship can create hardship. 100%, yes, sure. Now, is the hardship because God doesn't love you? No, it's because you're dumb. <laughs> That's why. You're the dummy that said, I think my map's better than his map. So you go out there and what happens? You, you know, you get off the grid beat up. And then what do you do? You go, you come limping back to the map. And you go, well, that was bad. And then you, right? And then we're back on the map. Now, you didn't have to get beat up. But sometimes on the trail, there's danger. And you get beat up. And so you, gotta, you don't know if you're getting beat up because you're over here or you're beat up because you're on here. And so that's why you've got to know, you got to have this Bible to go, well, what is the map? See, what is the object? How did, because if, if you're over there, here's the thing, you're, you're going to figure out real quick, if, if you're over there, off the grid, you're going to figure out that you got over there because of your expectations. You were chasing your stuff. You were doing your thing. You were. But so if you're in the word of God and you're like, I'm walking with God, I'm obeying God. And here's the thing. Does it does God expect you to obey everything? This is all you have to do to stay on the map. Obey what you know. If you obey what you know, because God is so good at this, you know what he does? You can't get to a place on the map beyond what you know. You know that? So if you just obey what you know, the further you go on the map, the more you know, the more there is to know, but at the same time, the better you are at. But God's got this thing rigged in our favor. We're the ones that decide, you know what? I'm not listening to Siri. I'm just going to drive around and find that destination myself. And that never goes well. That never goes well. 
See, everyone who follows God's directions, no matter how ridiculous they may seem at the time, will always end up where they're supposed to be. Now, how do I know that? Because God tells us that over and over and over. I mean, Paul told the Philippians, I'm sure of this one thing. This one thing I'm 100% sure of. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. You know what that means? He who gave you a map. See, you only get a map if you're saved. So the one who gave you a map guarantees you're finding the treasure. But everyone that gets the map has a different experience on the journey predicated on their dedication to the map. But you can't outwalk what you know. God won't let that happen because to, that, would, that would set you up for failure. God never expects you to know something you don't know. He doesn't. I promise you, all you need to do, if you got saved yesterday, no problem. All you got to do is obey what you know. Because you're, you're way back at the beginning of that map. You just stepped off the X and just obey what you know and you'll stay right on the, tr on the trail. The problem comes in when you sit under teaching And you hear all these sayings and you learn all these sayings and you, you have access to all this, but you ignore it. You ignore it. And here's the thing. You can't, you can't fake God out. You can't say to God, well, what I'm going to do is just stay here at the very beginning where, it's, where I don't hardly know anything. I'm not going to go there because I don't. I don't want to know. If I don't know anything, I don't have to. I'm just going to stay here. Now, do you think he's going to let you do that? Man, come on. There's zero chance that's going to work. Because this God that reigns over the universe that you've placed your, your, your faith and trust in, who, who is sovereign and good, who created this whole redemptive plan, is a billion times more committed to your sanctification than you or me will ever be. Ever. Because nobody in this room slaughtered their son for people to be on this map. So you can bank on one thing. The person who invested everything in you being uh, having access to that map is going to be with you every step of the way. And who's going to be uh, engaged and, and intentional and participating ultimately in every scenario. It's just a visual way to understand something that is very obvious. So let's have some application. Um, first. Maybe you're here and you're experiencing something very difficult. Well, the first thing I want you to know is that it doesn't mean that you lack faith or that God's abandoned you. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're off the path, the map. It very well may be that you're on the map, on the path. See, again, a lot of the way that you approach this is going gonna, is gonna to be predicated on you as an individual person. And so the problem with this is, is that I don't want to say too much about the way that I do this because if you're not like me, you're not going to see it that way. Because the thing about it is, is that God created all of us uniquely and individually. And so we operate, on. we all have to walk this map, but the way God's working in the same map, I mean, he's a, he's a supernatural God who has unlimited creativity. Just look around you. So the thing is, is that there's going to be differences in the way that we, so for me, I'm just saying for me, when I find myself getting beat up along the path, okay, for me, I'm really not concerned about necessarily whether this is I'm on the path or off the path. In other words, I don't, I don't invest a lot of time in why is this happening to me. I tend to just focus on the fact that it is happening to me. And so whatever God wants to do in me in it, I want that to happen. And so it's, it's the same response. I'm drawn to the, to the map guide the same way that you are if you're trying to figure out why this is happening or whatever, you know. I'm just, we're both drawn to the, to the solution just for different reasons. I'm not drawn, compelled to, or, or consumed with what, you know. Yes, I want to know that I'm on the map, but the thing about it is, is that it's just the way that I see it. You know, I have complete confidence in God that whatever's happening in my life, He's using it for my good. See, the thing about it is, is I'm 100% certain that God never acts punitively in my life. Not a lot of people are. But I'm 100% certain of that. See, this is the, if you, if you read the Bible and let the Bible give you your understanding of, because, you know, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. So the point I'm making is this. God will never do anything in my life that will push me further from Him. Anything that's happening in my life, God is allowing it regardless of the cause. So that's the point. I'm not obsessed with the cause because I know that God's allowing it to draw me closer to Him. But you got you to gotta, you gotta believe that at the core of who you are. And there's not a lot of there's a lot of people who who just don't believe that God doesn't act punitively. They just don't believe that. And but when you read the Old Testament and you read God punishing disobedience and punishing sin. He's 100 percent punishing disobedience and punishing sin, but it is not punitive. God's not punishing to harm when it comes to his children. He's punishing to heal. He's punishing to, to draw you back. He's punishing to correct something. So if, I, if I'm getting punished, 
do I, do I really, am I going to invest a lot of time in figuring out, am I here or am I there? No. I just want what God wants me to gain from whatever it is. And I'm like you. I don't like it. I want out of it. But, you know, it just, the longer I go along the map, I guess the more, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I feel like you, you just, you, you just grow in the, in the comfort of, of your father and his uh, presence with you along the journey. And it's hard, yeah, but it's okay. Because if, if I know that whatever's happening to me is, is filtering through the hand of a God who loves me beyond my wildest imagination, I'll take it. I may not like it, but I'll take it. All right, the second thing is this. If you're, if you're experiencing suffering, I want you to know that it doesn't mean that God won't honor your faith by performing a life-changing, Christ-exalting miracle like the ones mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. He might. You see, the thing about it is, is there's nothing wrong with telling God what you wish that he would do. And there's nothing wrong with asking God to do something impossible or supernatural or whatever the case may be. That is not at all what I'm saying. I'm simply saying that what, what is the object of, the, of your faith? In other words, is, are you putting your faith in that? So, so here's the thing. If this thing doesn't work out, then what? Is it going to change the way you? You see, the minute your posture is, if God doesn't fix this, I don't know if I can follow him. So, you know, brilliant. Your plan is threaten the God of the universe. Boy, what a brilliant move. I mean, no, see, any version of any of that is just mocking God, and it's going to <laughs> it's going to lead to trouble. It's going to lead to trouble. It's going to lead to, you know, it tells, it tells an all-loving God what? Clearly this pain is not teaching you what it needs to teach you, so it's probably going to crank up. Thirdly, faith is not some magical formula that guarantees financial, physical, personal, or social success. See, we just we need to be careful about saying, you know, man, I'm doing this and it's going really good. God's really in it. Well, so now, that means God's only in the things that are going good according to your definition of good? So God's not in the things that are in your life and my life that we would say aren't going good? He's not in that? We just need to be careful about the way we think about things. I mean, because what happens is it, if you... Don't think of that as a technicality. Think of it, that, that's a stepping stone to, to keep you off a bad expectation. It's a bad expectation. Who, see, it, 
if if you if you have a if you get a new job and you're making this great salary is it true that God you can say well is it true God's blessing me man I'm making this great salary in a sense yeah because every good gift comes from above right sure but the danger is God's not looking at your job, and he doesn't base success on your salary. He bases the success of you at your job on your faithfulness at work. Are you being faithful at work? So you may be making just enough money to squeak by, but you have a gospel influence in the place that you work in. And you see, even as I say that, it just... You know, in my spirit, I just worry that if the truth were known, some of you in here think you just thought I need to be more faithful at work so that God will bless me financially. Because that's just how broken we are. But here's the thing. What what has he he hasn't promised my expectations or your expectations, he, but he has promised. And what has he promised? He's promised to meet your needs. And he almost always does exceedingly and abundantly more than that, but he's promised to meet your needs. That's what he's promised to do. And so just be faithful in the God who's faithful to you. And he knows all things. So what I always say is that, you know, there, there's certain things that I know about me, and, and so I also know that if I know them about me, well, then God certainly knows them about me. Well, that explains some things, right? And so regardless of, of you, you see, I know about me that, that if I came into a bunch of money, it would not increase my faithfulness. It would not increase my faithfulness. And God knows that, and I'm grateful for that. But now that's not true about everybody. You know, we have, we have some people uh, that are the opposite and are super, super generous and, and are super faithful with all that God's given them, and that's awesome. You see, it just depends. So, neither the pain nor pleasure you feel in your body, because, you know, these are the things, you know, our health is a big issue. We have faith crisis around our health all the time or around the health of other people. And so, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm sure that God's going to heal them. You know, what am I going to say? I mean, you know, we're standing in the hallway in the hospital and your loved one's in there, you know, on life support and you're telling me that you're sure God's going to heal them. Like, I'm not going to correct your theology. But in my spirit, I'm going, Phew. He might. He might not. But how are you sure? And you say, well, God told me. Good, well, show me the verse. Show it to me. Because if you show it to me, I'm with you. 
But see, God didn't tell you something he didn't tell me because now we've gotten into now there's new revelation. And is there a new revelation? Negative. So whatever God tells you, he tells me, and whatever he tells me, he tells you. There may be different application, but it's the same body. We all got the same map. So I'm just saying we got we to gotta be careful. Neither the deprivation or prosperity reflected in our bank accounts. Because finances, that's another place where we get all tangled up. But honestly, I know we're almost done, but finances is the easiest one. Can I just say that? The easiest one. If you're getting beat up financially, in two seconds, you can know if you're on the map or off the map. As a matter of fact, you already know that. So if you're getting beat up financially and you're not generous, hello, you're off the map. I mean, that's like the simplest one. The simplest one. We could, I mean, almost everybody in this room who's spent any amount of time walking with God, I can guarantee you this. I'm not... it. It's not a guarantee that if you're not generous, you're going to be broke. You're going to not have money. Here's what's a guarantee. If you're not generous, whatever money you have is never going to serve its purpose. I have, for 25 years, I have counseled with people. And 100% of the time, people who aren't generous according to God's generosity say the same thing. I don't know where all my money goes. I, ha I make plenty of money, but somehow I don't have enough. Ding, 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 ding. Let's go read some verses in Malachi. I mean, it's so simple. Next, neither the success or failure of your professional life. You know? You know, maybe there's this job that you want so bad, and it's got all these great benefits, and you're going to make more money. And so, so, look, I know you're human. This is what you're doing. This is what we do. We go, God, if you'd let me get this job, this is going to be better for my family because I'm going to have all these benefits. It's going to be good for my family. I'm going to make more money so I can be more generous. Well, first of all, if you ain't being generous with what you got, then what you just said went right out the window. But anyway, let's suppose that you're being generous with what you have now. And so you're saying, God, this will be my family have better health care and better benefits. I will make more money, so I'll be able to be more generous in accordance with what I'm already being generous. So true, true. And you could go, and even this, you could even say, and God, it's got a more family-friendly schedule, so I'm going to be able to be home with my family more, which is going to be good for my family. So that's true, that's true, that's true. So it's a, it's a foregone conclusion that God wants you to have that job. No, because God knows everything. And here's what God knows, what you don't know. All that's true. But God knows that if you got that job, you get mixed up in an adulterous affair with somebody at that place. Yeah, he knows that. He knows that that that. Uh, all those things you said that you think are true, that in your, with our knowledge, they are true. But what God knows is that there's an environment at that place that's going to be 
super detrimental to your faith. The flip side is, if you understand God's priorities, He'll move His people to a place where they have less benefit, where they make less money, and where it seems like it's a worse schedule, where they have greater opportunity to be light in the darkness. Because, listen, God's not worried. You think God's in heaven going, oh, I'm worried because they don't have good coverage. I'm worried about their insurance. He's got it handled. He's just calling us to be wise. He's, he's got it under control. He knows. Any measure of God's ability or willingness to accomplish remarkable things through your faith. See, none of those things that drive us crazy are measures of His ability or willingness. The map book. What He said. That's what's going to guide you along this map. That's why you can, you can do everything. You can, you can sign up to serve in every ministry under the sun. You can be the busiest Christian that's ever walked the planet Earth. But if you don't read your Bible and you don't know what the Bible says, it's going to be a mega problem. And the thing is, God, if you've been given the map, is not going to allow that to happen because he's got his son's blood invested in you being there. But here's the thing. Just remember in Matthew chapter 7, what happened? There was a whole bunch of busy church people and Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. You're a worker of lawlessness. They were busy church people who never got a copy of the map. They made their own map. They were busy doing all these things for God, but they, weren't, they didn't have a map. And he said, I never knew you. So faith is clinging to God, whether he parts the Red Sea for you or you find yourself living penny, penniless in a cave. You cling. That's what faith is. Because the, the object of true faith understands that belonging to him is better, period. It's just better. It's better. So maybe you can meditate on this conversation that we've had and be encouraged. Know that your Heavenly Father's given you a map and He's more committed to you in the process of sanctification and He's already 100% secured the treasure at the end. You're going to be successful in that. And what more do we need to know? That's awesome. It's awesome. So if he started the work, he's going to finish it. We just want to make sure we're not doing our work. We didn't start the work, right? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for each one here. Thank you for however this.